Due to the graphic nature of this story, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of terrorism, hate crimes, suicide, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. 51-year-old Argentinian lawyer Alberto Nisman organized piles of paperwork across his dinner table. Brushing back his gray hair, he pored over details of a case he'd spent nearly two decades working on. Four days earlier, Nisman had accused members of the Argentinian government of orchestrating an elaborate cover-up, including sitting President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner. He believed Fernandez had protected the terrorists responsible for a 1994 suicide bombing in Buenos Aires because it benefited her politically. Now it was up to the courts to decide. All his sleepless nights and thankless hours were about to come to fruition in two days on Monday, January 19, 2015. For now, Nisman readied himself for bed. He brushed his teeth, washed his face, and examined himself in the bathroom mirror. The press occasionally mocked his narcissistic tendencies, but he didn't care. He wanted to look good for the cameras as he made history. Alberto Nisman would end up making history, but not how he imagined. After the sun rose on Buenos Aires the next morning, his mother found him dead, lying in a pool of his own blood. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know, but in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on Alberto Nisman, an Argentinian prosecutor found dead in his apartment in January 2015, mere hours before he was set to appear in court for a landmark case. Today, we'll discuss Nisman's career as an attorney and chief investigator of a 1994 suicide bombing in Buenos Aires. We'll examine his rise to political fame and the mysterious circumstances surrounding his death. Next episode, we'll consider what really happened to Alberto Nisman. Though his death was originally ruled a suicide, new evidence points to murder in a case that remains unsolved to this day. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. July 18th, 1994. On her way to work in downtown Buenos Aires, a woman picked up her pace. She wanted to beat the rush of foot traffic in a traditionally Jewish neighborhood. 
Without checking for cars first, she raced across the street. A white Renault utility truck nearly ran her over. A young man sat behind the wheel, his focus on a fixed point ahead. The woman watched as the van lumbered towards the Argentine-Israelite Mutual Association, better known as the AMIA building. Not thinking much of it, she continued heading towards work. But before she rounded the next corner... The Renault truck driver reached the AMIA building and detonated several hundred pounds of explosives. The structure, six stories high, collapsed. Smoke billowed over the city streets as cries of anguish rang out from falling rubble. As the dust began to settle, chaos gripped the street. A woman, battered from the attack, screamed for her daughter, now buried under tons of debris. Children covered in ash and blood wandered the streets looking for their parents. Within minutes, emergency personnel as well as average citizens launched intensive rescue efforts. They worked tirelessly, digging through rubble for weeks in hopes of rescuing survivors. In the end, the ammonium nitrate-fueled explosion killed 85 people and injured over 300 more. As of this recording, the bombing is considered the deadliest terrorist attack in Argentinian history. Officials immediately launched an investigation to find those responsible. But after years of exhaustive work, all their leads appeared to go cold. Police transported all the evidence to a warehouse where it started to collect dust. Then, in 1997, three years after the bombing, the Argentinian government reached out to the United States for assistance. FBI Special Agent James Bernazani traveled to Buenos Aires to bring a fresh pair of eyes to the investigation. Wasting no time, he headed to the evidence warehouse. He wanted to inspect the truck used in the attack. Local officers familiar with the original investigation thought this was a waste of time. According to them, all the evidence had been thoroughly evaluated and logged already. But after prying apart the crumbled wreckage of the Renault truck, Bernazani and his team found bits of flesh and denim fused to the metal. It had been previously overlooked. Bernazani promptly sent samples stateside to be tested. FBI technicians believed the driver was Ibrahim Hussein Barrow, an operative for the militant religious extremist group Hezbollah. In addition to the DNA evidence, Hezbollah's leader, Hassan Nasrallah, had reportedly honored Barrow's family in the days after the attack. The FBI believed it was for the fatal role he played. Hezbollah had a history of aggression against the Argentinian Jewish community. Two years prior to the AMIA bombing, they'd sent a truck full of explosives to the Israeli embassy in Argentina, killing 29 people and injuring more than 200. Hezbollah had claimed responsibility for the attack. Based on the chemical similarity of the explosives used, officials suspected both attacks were carried out by the same group. But Hezbollah never publicly took credit for the bombing at AMIA headquarters. And according to Special Agent Bernazani, the DNA gathered from the truck could have been tampered with in the three years it sat in the warehouse. So rather than pursue charges against foreign operatives, prosecutors focused on suspects on the ground in their country, 
what they called the local connection. In total, 22 Argentines admitted to having some involvement in the attack, including police officers. Their confessions were enough to press charges. With over 588 volumes of evidence and testimony from over 1,200 witnesses, the hearings lasted nine years, making it the longest-running trial in Argentina's history and one of the most expensive. Given its length and scope, we don't have time to discuss the many nuances and blunders of the proceedings. However, for our purposes, here's what you need to know. Alberto Nisman worked as a junior prosecutor in the case for all nine years, from 1994 to 2003. And the trial was filled with unethical, occasionally illegal, twists and turns. Prosecutors mishandled evidence, witnesses recanted or altered testimony, others lied. One lawyer even claimed Argentinian intelligence agents had tortured him for information. But perhaps the most shocking turn of events happened when video footage leaked of the case's judge bribing a witness with $400,000 cash. He apparently wanted the man to implicate police officers from Buenos Aires in the attack. To make matters even worse, the justice may have been operating at the behest of the president of Argentina at the time, Carlos Menem. According to The New Yorker, Menem possibly wanted to implicate the police in order to embarrass the governor of Buenos Aires, one of his political opponents. Given the scandal and controversy, it's no surprise that all 22 defendants were found not guilty. No single person was held responsible for the deadly attack. As a result, the case was regarded as a failure and a national disgrace. In 2003, Argentina elected a new president, President Nestor Kirchner. And one year into office, Kirchner decided to revive the investigation into the 1994 AMIA bombing. He wanted to erase the stain the previous trial had left on his country. And this time around, Alberto Nisman was appointed lead prosecutor. Due to Nisman's prior involvement, this was a controversial choice. But few people knew the ins and outs of the case better. And as a junior prosecutor, he'd only had limited agency the first time around. So he'd escaped much of the scrutiny his peers had received. Niesman started working on new angles in 2004, focusing on the DNA evidence gathered from the wreckage and questioning members of the alleged bomber's family. On October 25, 2006, in a more than 800-page document, he released his explosive conclusion. According to Niesman, the persons responsible for the bombing weren't just a group of militant extremists. Members of the Iranian government had ordered the attack. Coming up, the case that possibly killed Alberto Niesman. Wayne Simmons spent 27 years undercover for the CIA. When he retired from spy work, he got a big break. Terrorism analyst on Fox News. Then he met Kent Clisby. So I'm a real CIA guy. This is total nonsense. I'm Alex French, and I'm here to figure out who's telling the truth. Was Wayne Simmons a spy, or was he nothing but a con man? 
Imposters is a Spotify original from Parcast. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify. And now back to the story. In October 2006, Alberto Nisman charged seven members of the Iranian government with orchestrating the 1994 suicide bombing in Buenos Aires and Hezbollah, a militant religious extremist group, of carrying out their orders. To make his case, he predominantly drew on the testimony of one man named Abolasem Mezbahi. Mezbahi had worked as an Iranian intelligence agent before defecting to Germany in 1996. The decision to carry out the attack was allegedly made on August 14, 1993, at a meeting of the Committee for Special Operations in Iran. And the country's supreme leader, Ali Khamenei, was reportedly in attendance. Even after Nisman released his findings, the motivation behind the attack remained unclear. According to Mezbahi's testimony, the goal may have been to kill members of Argentina's Jewish population, a hate crime in the truest sense. But Nisman proposed there may have been more to it than that. He believed the attack could have been a response to Argentina ending a nuclear deal with Iran back in 1989. Unfortunately, he couldn't gather enough evidence to sufficiently support this claim. As a result, Reactions to his findings were mixed. The FBI said they couldn't take action without more evidence. But the International Criminal Police Organization, or Interpol, issued so-called red notices for five of the Iranian officials Nisman accused. Interpol is a worldwide operation designed to allow police from different countries to cooperate and coordinate with each other. Anyone on their red notice list can be provisionally arrested by law enforcement officers anywhere in the world. Sometime around 2007, Nisman started to garner a considerable amount of fame. In addition to the media attention brought on by his investigation, his frequent visits to Buenos Aires' nightclubs with girlfriends landed him in the tabloids. He allegedly enjoyed the fame. A journalist close to Nisman remarked, whenever he saw a camera, that was it. He would drop everything. He also relished a rather lavish lifestyle. He rented a luxury apartment in Puerto Madero, an expensive waterfront neighborhood in Buenos Aires. He indulged in Botox, colored contact lenses, and splurged on hobbies like windsurfing. Though separated from his wife, he had two teenage daughters whom he stayed in close contact with, often speaking with them multiple times a day. According to friends, he never let any aspect of his lifestyle distract from his investigation. They marveled at his ability to keep track of the immense complexities of the inquiry, constantly poring over details at all hours of the night. Of course, his efforts were bolstered by a substantial budget and a dedicated team to assist him. Not to mention, he had friends in high places who weren't on his payroll. The FBI and other American officials reportedly stepped in to help build his case. And he allegedly had assistance from a man named Jaime Tuso. Tuso had acted as an active member of Argentina's intelligence agency since the 1970s. In his time as an agent, he allegedly used some unorthodox reconnaissance tactics, including repression and torture. 
and he allegedly had a spy network connecting him to high-ranking leaders around the world. But Niesman didn't need help finding influential figures to support him at home. Arguably, his biggest supporter was the newest president of Argentina, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner. Fernandez was the wife of former President Nestor Kirchner, who'd served directly prior to her election in 2007. After campaigning as a progressive candidate, she started her political career as one of Alberto Nisman's biggest supporters. She brought survivors of the 1994 AMIA bombing to the General Assembly of the United Nations in New York, using her global platform to urge that the perpetrators of the attack be brought to justice. In 2011, she delivered a speech saying, I am demanding on the basis of the requirements of Argentine justice that the Islamic Republic of Iran submit to the legal authority and in particular allow for those who have been accused of some level of participation in the AMIA attack to be brought to justice. Anytime Iranian delegates tried to speak, Kirchner and her guests would apparently walk out of the room. For years, this persistence won her the admiration of her constituents. But then, in 2010, her attitude towards the attack dramatically shifted. She suddenly adopted a less hostile approach and invited Iran to conduct their own investigation into the 1994 attack. Three years later, on January 27, 2013, Fernandez announced Argentina had struck a deal with Iran and would create what she called the Truth Commission. This essentially allowed Argentinian judges to fly to Iran and interview the alleged perpetrators of the attack. The goal being to find out what actually happened once and for all. But there was one major caveat. No Iranian would be required to stand trial. Or in other words, no one would ever be held accountable. Reactions were mixed. Some Argentines saw Fernandez's actions as a graceful act of diplomacy. But many others considered her 180-degree about-face an act of surrender, perhaps none more than the country's Jewish population, and no individual more than Alberto Nisman. Shortly after the news broke, Nisman appeared on television to denounce the agreement, calling it unconstitutional and adding, These crimes can be judged only where they happened. After 20 years working on the case, Fernandez's Truth Commission blindsided Nisman. Professionally, it felt like an unnecessary concession. Personally, it felt like a slap in the face. Not only would he not see justice served, he was now effectively out of a job. So he began a new investigation, a secret one, to discover the real reason for the president's sudden change of heart. And he called on his friend Jaime Tuso to help. In addition to the president, they investigated her foreign minister, Hector Timmerman, the man who negotiated the agreement with Iran on her behalf. A year into their probe, Fernandez fired Tuso and two other top intelligence officials. Some suspected she'd caught wind of his collaboration with Niesman and wanted to stop them in their tracks. Fearing that he might be next, Niesman worked furiously to build his case. 
Then, on January 14, 2015, Niesman finally felt like he had enough incriminating evidence, however circumstantial, to warrant action. After handing a 289-page report to a judge, he made a statement to the media. It accused the president and her foreign minister of, quote, being authors and accomplices of an aggravated cover-up and obstruction of justice regarding the Iranians accused of the Amia terrorist attack. Fernandez vehemently denied Nisman's allegations as unequivocally false. To be clear, the report wasn't a formal indictment. Nisman knew he didn't have sufficient evidence, but he hoped the filing would prompt a more public investigation, one where he could interview the president on the record. He anticipated a fallout from his actions, but what ensued far surpassed his expectations. State officials and government-run media outlets immediately began attacking Niesman's credibility. One journalist called the accusations against the sitting president, quote, political and institutional absurdity. Which meant tensions were high in the lead-up to the preliminary hearings. In the four days after Niesman filed the report, and before his death, he didn't interact with many people. But in texts with friends, he called his upcoming court date the biggest day of his life. And yet, he alluded to a growing sense of unease. One of the few people he actually visited was Congresswoman Patricia Bullrich. Niesman reportedly told Bullrich that he'd listened to wiretapped conversations and was convinced Iranian officials had his personal information, and they were out to get him. More than anything, he was worried about his daughter's safety. On Saturday, January 17th, Niesman called a friend and computer technician, Diego Lagamarsino, to his apartment. Diego wasn't sure what Niesman wanted, but it quickly became clear his concerns had nothing to do with computers. According to Diego, Niesman asked him, Do you know what it's like when your daughters don't want to be with you because they're afraid something might happen to them? In this same conversation, Niesman inquired whether Diego owned a gun he could borrow. Apparently, he didn't trust his bodyguards to protect him. Diego returned three hours later with a gun wrapped in green cloth. His only concern was that the prosecutor might use the weapon on someone else. After Diego showed him how to properly load the old 22 caliber pistol, Niesman returned to work. Before Diego left, Niesman remarked that they would need to go to shop for a better gun in the coming week. And as far as we know, Diego Lagomarsino was the last person to see Alberto Nisman alive. In his final hours, he reportedly tried to convince Congress to prevent the public from attending his court appearance, saying, I might get out of this dead. Coming up, Alberto Nisman's body is found. Now, back to the story. After formally accusing President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner's administration of corruption, Alberto Nisman worked through the weekend of January 18, 2015. He was preparing to appear before Congress the following Monday to elaborate on his report. Fearing for his and his family's safety, he reportedly never left his apartment. 
That Sunday, Niesman didn't fetch the newspapers, which his security team noted was unusual. By mid-morning, his bodyguards still awaited instructions from their boss. When none came by lunch, one bodyguard tried Niesman's cell phone. Nobody answered. They pounded on his front door to see if anyone was still inside. After hearing no response or movement, the bodyguard reached out to Niesman's mother, Sarah Garfunkel, to inform her that something might be wrong. Garfunkel hired a locksmith, and at approximately 10.30 p.m., she and her son's security team gained entrance to his apartment and unwittingly stepped into a crime scene. There were no visible signs of forced entry or a struggle. Nisman wasn't in the kitchen, living room, or bedroom. But when Garfunkel tried to open the bathroom, the door wouldn't budge. After forcing her way inside, she found her son. Still dressed in shorts and a t-shirt, his body was crumpled against the door. He was lying in a pool of his own blood, dead from a gunshot wound to his head. Not far from his right hand sat Diego Lagamarcino's 22 caliber pistol with a single bullet casing next to it. Niesman's mother called the police. Officials arrived shortly after. In the hours after his body was found, more than 60 people walked through Niesman's apartment, some stepping in his blood and tracking it throughout the unit. Police cleared evidence before it could be logged. Others reportedly rooted through Niesman's personal belongings, including his closet and private safe, without wearing latex gloves. One police officer wiped the pistol found near Niesman's body with a swath of toilet paper from the bathroom. They didn't find any note besides a grocery list, but officials suspected Niesman died by suicide. The bodyguards hadn't seen anyone approach the two entrances to Niesman's apartment. Many of the building's security cameras were either broken or missing. But those that worked didn't indicate that anyone had come in or out over the weekend. At least, they hadn't come in through a door. After a little digging, investigators found a third possible entrance to Niesman's apartment. A corridor for an air conditioner that connected to a neighbor's apartment. The vent was just wide enough for a person to fit through they found an unidentifiable footprint inside. After combing through Niesman's personal records, police also learned that almost 500 messages had recently been erased from his phone and computer. But an anonymous threat lingered in his email box. It read, We warned you and you didn't stop. We'll keep our promise to kill you and your family, but first we'll trash you publicly and in the media. While it was never discovered who sent the email, Niesman's friend and former intelligence agent Jaime Tuso suggested it came from a member of Fernandez's inner circle. Shortly after Niesman's body had been discovered, a journalist for the Buenos Aires Herald took to Twitter to announce that Alberto Niesman had been found in a pool of blood, not breathing. While this was true, four days later, the journalist noticed his tweet had been quoted by a state-controlled media agency. But the text had been altered to read that Niesman had been found dead. An autopsy report confirmed investigators' initial suspicions. 
Niesman died by suicide. But the ruling seemed to ignore a glaring detail. A test to find gunpowder residue on Niesman's hands had come back negative, and there was none found near his body either. This meant that he either shot himself and someone cleaned his hands afterward, or he never fired the gun in the first place. Niesman's close friends and family found it difficult to believe he would ever end his own life, citing his love for his daughters. But they also knew Argentina had a history of politically motivated murders. Naturally, conspiracy theories abounded. Hours after the news broke about his death, Argentines staged demonstrations outside President Fernandez's offices. They held signs painted with the words, I am Nisman. Not trusting the official story, they demanded to know the truth about what really happened to Alberto Nisman, the man who'd spent his career fighting for Argentina's Jewish community. Most accused the government of orchestrating his murder. Though President Fernandez originally called Niesman's death a suicide, a few days later she reversed her opinion, somehow managing to make the prosecutor's death about herself. She suggested someone had killed Niesman in an effort to discredit her administration. This seemed to ignore the fact that it was Niesman who had just filed a report to launch an investigation that would, if successful, do just that. Fernandez also started spreading false rumors that Alberto Nisman and Diego Lago Marcino were lovers. But the misinformation didn't deter the public. A month later, nearly 400,000 Argentines marched together through the streets. They stood silent together, in solidarity, in the rain, mourning the loss of a man they considered to be a beacon of light, fighting against corruption. Shortly after the demonstration, posters started appearing around Buenos Aires, attacking Nisman's character. They portrayed Nisman as a playboy who'd used government funds to woo women and support his bombastic lifestyle. As we mentioned, there was a semblance of truth to these claims. But regardless of their veracity, the posters were a propaganda campaign against a man who could no longer defend himself. And the subtext seemed to be, Alberto Nisman got what he deserved. A message that seemed at odds with the allegation that Nisman had died by suicide. Alberto's former romantic partner hired a forensics team to conduct an independent investigation into his death. They drew attention to a considerable amount of evidence that had either previously been overlooked or intentionally ignored. This included a photo of bloodstains found on Nisman's bed, suggesting that his body may have been moved after his death and a coffee cup with DNA belonging to someone other than Niesman was found in his sink. Further examination of Niesman's corpse revealed that his nose had been broken. In addition, he had bruises around his ankles and a cut on his lip, which suggested an attack. They also estimated Niesman's death occurred around 2.45 a.m. on Sunday morning, almost nine hours earlier than previously claimed. 
And according to the forensics team, a discrepancy that large suggested that the previous medical examiner either ignored or rushed due diligence protocols. Perhaps most alarmingly, the secondary forensic team found traces of ketamine in his body. In medicine, ketamine is typically used as an anesthetic. It can allow for dissociation from pain, and it typically lingers in a person's system for about 12 hours. Using ketamine without proper medical supervision is extremely dangerous and can lead to health complications or death. But some people use the drug for recreational purposes. For the investigators, the question became, would Alberto Nisman do that? According to friends and family, this was unlikely. Hardly one to enjoy alcohol, they felt he would never abuse ketamine, especially on the evening before what he'd previously called the biggest day of his life. So the new autopsy report suggested an alternative scenario for what could have happened to Nisman. Someone beat him, drugged him, dragged his body into the bathroom, held him in front of a tub, and shot him in the back of the head. Then they arranged the scene to make it look like it had been a suicide. And believe it or not, the story only got more complicated. In 2017, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner was indicted for treason related to covering up the 1994 AMIA bombing. A court called for her arrest, but her political seat, now as a senator, granted her immunity from being prosecuted and convicted. In 2018, the federal court of Buenos Aires officially ruled Alberto Nisman's death a homicide. That same year, Fernandez was indicted again, this time on additional corruption charges unrelated to the bombing and Nisman's death. As of this recording, Fernandez serves as vice president of Argentina. The investigation into Alberto Nisman's murder remains ongoing. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next time with part two on the death of Alberto Nisman. For more information on Alberto Nisman, amongst the many sources we used, we found the Netflix six-part docu-series titled Nisman, The Prosecutor, The President, and The Spy, along with The New Yorker's 2015 article, Death of a Prosecutor, extremely helpful in our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by S. Christian Rowe with writing assistance by Angela Jorgensen and Connor Sampson. Fact-checking by Cara Mackerline and research by Bradley Kline. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs>